books. Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One for the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. The Stonewall Riots have been placed as the starting point of modern interpretations of trans history. As we've discussed in earlier episodes, much of what we think we know about the Stonewall Riots is contested. Accounts vary, sometimes widely, and often don't align to our current discourse around who was involved and what exactly happened. While millennials are more likely to highlight the involvement of trans women of color sex workers in instigating the riot, often citing Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, most accounts from Stonewall veterans themselves agree that the spark that lit that fire was actually a butch or drag king being assaulted by police. In this episode of OFTV, we'll take a look at the life of the person widely believed to be what some have called the Rosa Parks of the gay community. More than just the ignition of the Stonewall Riots, this butch pioneered integration, toured the country as a drag king, and was even named the Imperial King of New York within the Imperial drag system. So join us as we take a look at the life of Stormy Delavier, before and after Stonewall. On Christmas Eve 1920, way down in New Orleans, Louisiana, an African-American mother and white father gave birth to Stormy Delavier. Well, maybe it happened on Christmas Eve. Even Stormy couldn't be sure. This confusion she credits to her mother having been a servant working in the house of her white father. Her New York Times obituary states that her parents eventually married and moved the family to California. Not too much is known about her early life, only that her mixed race heritage made her an outsider as a child, accepted by neither black nor white kids and a target of bullies. Here's how Stormy described it at the age of 89. You finally told me because everybody, the white kids were beating me up, the black kids were beating me, everybody was jumping on me. If it wasn't for, because of my father's money, it was because of being, blind, being a Negro with a white face. Yeah. So he told me if I didn't stop running, I'd be running the rest of my life. And when I was 15, I stopped running and I haven't run a day since. 
two bullies in particular went after her. She told After Ellen in one of her last interviews, quote, I knocked their heads together. They thought they were hard asses. They ended up one on top of the other. She also later recalled, when you grow up like me, honey, you better be able to see all the way around you because when the black kids weren't chasing me, the white kids were chasing me. And if they weren't, the dogs were chasing me or the snakes were chasing me. Somebody was always chasing me until I stopped running. By the time she was a teenager, Stormy had her sights set on the stage. According to her interview with After Ellen, Stormy began working in the Ringling Brothers Circus, riding Jumping Horse's side saddle. But a fall that broke some of her bones put the kibosh on life in the circus. Around this time, in her late teens, Stormy realized she was gay. Later in life, she would describe this moment like a light bulb going off over her head. Moving on from her failed life as an equestrian, Stormy began singing in big bands in the 1940s. Throughout her life, and even into her old age, she maintained a stunning baritone voice that made her quite successful with the bands. She even went on a European tour with one of the bands she played with during this period, While working in the bands, Stormy began performing on stage sometimes as a woman, other times as a man. She quickly found that she was more believable and comfortable as a man. So I tried to do the proper thing, you know, wear men's clothes on stage and wear women's clothes on the street. I got picked up twice for being a drag queen. Well, the guy uh, that arrested me once for being a drag queen came in the club and he said, uh, 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 said, you don't know how to tie. I said, well, if I'm not tying my tie right, why don't you come in every night and show me how I'm supposed to tie? And he did. To this day, I can tie a bow tie with even looking in the mirror and it'll be perfect. And he was always laughing. He was a nice man. He was only doing his job. Her success in the big bands brought her to the attention of Danny Brown and Doc Benner. Danny and Doc were effete, pencil-mustached, vaudeville performers and producers who'd been producing gay reviews since sometime in the mid-1930s. Some of these early reviews include Danny Brown and his Greenwich Village Playboy Review, Gay Boy Girl Review, Boys Will Be Girls Review, All-Star Male Review, and Danny Brown and his female impersonators. Though later programs would state that the Jewel Box Review began in 1939 in Miami, Florida, research by J.D. Doyle of QueerMusicHeritage.com indicates that this may not be entirely true. Several possible dates for the founding of the Jewel Box appear between 1937 and 1940 and which part of Florida it started in is also questionable. There appears to have been jewel box clubs in both Tampa and Miami, both run by Danny Brown. Whether Doc Benner, whose given name was Frank W. Benner, was involved in the beginning, as the program says, is also questionable, as his name doesn't appear on the original advertisements. Regardless, the Jewel Box had been running for some time as a drag review. 
The Tampa Club appears to have definitely been running between the years 1942 and 1949, and lawsuits regarding zoning issues with the Miami Club put its lifespan between 1946 and 1950 when they lost their suit, forcing the closure of the jewel box. By the 1950s, with no permanent home for the club, Danny and Doc took the show on the road. They'd already had touring companies for some time while running the clubs, so they were no strangers to it. It's around this time that they picked up Stormy. Before Stormy arrived, they'd already seemed to have had the idea of including one drag king as MC alongside their 25 female impersonators and 15-piece band. A white drag king billed as Miss Mickey Mercer appears in a number of the Jewel Box programs before Stormy was brought on. In other programs, this role was played by a Miss Joe Vaughn. It's important to remember here that this was all taking place in the Jim Crow South. Segregation was still enforced both by law and by custom until the mid-1960s. Intriguingly, the Jewel Box Review seems to have been integrated from the start. Many of the early booklets and programs include not only Stormy, but also Black Drag Queen Mr. Billy Day, billed as the, quote, male Billy Holiday, as well as later editions such as Mr. Kirk Wilde and Mr. Ralph Crago. Among their fans, the Jewel Box Review also counted none other than Sammy Davis Jr., who appears in a number of photos in their programs alongside the Queens. For the next 14 years, Stormy performed as a drag king in the Jewel Box Review, which played gay and black clubs across the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Here in Montreal, for example, they played 28 weeks at the Café Provincial. They also played eight weeks in the aptly titled Club Gay Haven in Dearborn, Michigan. Jewel box performers, including Stormy herself, would later credit their work with inspiring much of the classic drag aesthetic, most notably the use of Las Vegas showgirl-style feathered headdresses later revisited in shows like La Cage. More understated than the queens, Stormy dressed in a small variety of male outfits, a sharp black suit or a naval officer's uniform, for example. The tall and remarkably handsome Stormy cut quite the striking image beside the painted and feathered queens with whom she formed lifelong friendships, none more so than Mr. Lynn Carter, the apparent star of the jewel box. Well, as far as Lynn goes, we were the best of friends, and I loved Lynn. We, we had such a great time together. Of particular note, is their tenure at the legendary Apollo Theater in the heart of Harlem, where they were billed as 25 men and one girl, Stormy being the girl. Here's the former manager of the Apollo, Bobby Schliffman, talking about their run there in Michelle Parkerson's 1991 film, Stormy, the Lady of the Jewel Box. It was a most unusual show. It was uh, something that um, 
was away from what was the normal fare of the Apollo. It was glamorous. It was uh, a show that involved a lot of very talented people. It was good family entertainment. It was wholesome. There was nothing sleazy about it. It was a show that people came back to see time and time again. The audience became very varied. Part of the gay community was uh, were big supporters of the show, and the general uh, community of uh, people of the community enjoyed it very much. Generally speaking, I think that the uh, backstage area was very businesslike. There wasn't a lot of frivolity back there. It was um, these people were dedicated to doing their shows and doing them in a professional manner and they rested. They had a long run to make and it was uh, three or four shows a day. I think it was four shows a day we were doing at the time. So that at 12.30, 3.30, 6.30 and 9.30 every day, they had to be ready to go. And the show was very demanding physically. The Jewel Box Review filled a very important need for us. Stormy appears to have continued with the Jewel Box until at least 1968 as she is featured in the program for the 25th anniversary show that year. Funnily enough, programs from the year before, 1967, are titled the 30th edition, again raising questions about when exactly the jewel box began. Maybe they just didn't remember. The programs themselves are also interesting and questionable in other ways. Some of the performers who appear in the early editions died years before publication, which begs the question of whether they were even in the show or if they were simply being included as famous drag queens. This makes me question how long exactly Stormy was part of the review. She may appear in the 1968 edition, but does that mean she was still performing with them by that point? It's hard to be sure. Either way, by 1969, Stormy appears to have settled into lesbian life in Manhattan. According to the Stonewall Veterans Association, one of the top 40 songs playing at the Stonewall Inn the week of the riots came from the soundtrack of hippie musical Hair. the dawning of a new age at the Stonewall Inn in June 1969. The same day as Judy Garland's funeral, police raided the Stonewall Inn, and the rest, as they say, is history. Highly contested history. Here's what we know for absolute sure. Police entered the Stonewall Inn and attempted to arrest patrons. 
A crowd gathered outside and became increasingly agitated at the unjust arrests. And then it exploded. Those are just about the only facts that have not been called into question over the years. Everything else, including who was there and what they did, has to be pieced together from often conflicting recollections of dozens of witnesses, as well as a number of people who have mm, perhaps somewhat dubious claims to being witnesses. In the dubious camp, we can locate our patron saint, Sylvia Rivera herself, whose best friend, Marsha P. Johnson, later claimed had not been there. Most Stonewall veterans can agree that Stormy Delavier was at Stonewall. They can also agree that the spark that lit the fuse that night was when a cop beat and attempted to arrest a butch person or drag king. Whether Stormy and this drag king are one and the same is a subject of much debate. Even Stormy herself has given multiple contradictory accounts over the decades. It's impossible to be absolutely sure anymore. But we've never had another possible lead, and given Stormy's confrontational demeanor, the story that she was the butch at the center of the Stonewall riots makes a lot of sense. I, for one, am satisfied that Stormy was the butch whose beating inspired the riots. As I've said before, in our episode about Sylvia and Marcia's pre-Stonewall life, there are two types of truths here. There are truths that are factually true, and then there are things that are emotionally true. It is from this emotional truth that the mythology around Stonewall has arisen. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Each generation since has been able to look at Stonewall and see reflected back to them their own politics and concerns, giving us a powerful touchstone on which to build our movements. Where it becomes slightly less of a good thing is when we attempt to erase people from the record who complicate the narrative we're trying to build. In Stormy's case, multiple later accounts of Stonewall exclude her entirely, including Martin Duberman's Stonewall book, as well as even the current radical queer discourse that centers trans women of color sex workers as primary or even exclusive actors at Stonewall. Here's Stormy herself talking about what happened that night at Stonewall was trying to figure out how it started when the fight really started. They were just running around, you know, calling uh, names and things and throwing toilet paper down from the windows and what have you. And I just walked up. I, I used to come in whenever I came in town to go down to see if anybody needed help or if they were in jail. I could get them out, what, what I could do. I looked like I was 20, but when that happened, I was 40, 48 years old. That was no riot. Everybody says a riot. It was, it was a... a, a it was a, a disobedience, and then they started fighting back. It was a rebellion. And once they got the hang of it, <laughs> they, they rebelled quite well. I walked away with an eye bleeding, but he was laying on the ground. Out. 
Exactly how one describes what happened at the Stonewall Inn is also hotly debated. Stormy and other actual Stonewall veterans generally refer to it as a rebellion or an uprising and bristle at the suggestion that it was a riot. I wondered about this divide for a long time. Why are younger people so enthusiastic about calling it a riot? And why are our elders, who were actually there, emphatic in their refusal of this word? Watching a documentary on the Black Panthers recently helped me piece some of it together. The 1960s were a time of massive political upheaval, not unlike today, with numerous countries wresting their freedom from colonizers across Africa and Latin America. In the US, the civil rights movement, emerging black power movement, and the student anti-Vietnam movement were the subject of much ire in the press and by authorities, up to and including the FBI, whose COINTELPRO agents attempted to infiltrate and subvert their revolutionary agendas. These movements, particularly the civil rights movement, were frequently accused of inciting riots, an accusation that severely damaged their perception among whites, similar to how Black Lives Matter was accused of inciting riots in Ferguson by Fox News and other conservative media outlets just a couple of years ago. Taking all of this into account, it's not surprising then that early gay activists including many Stonewall veterans, may have feared the derogatory labeling of their rebellion as a riot. It's clear from the early July 1969 founding of the Stonewall Veterans Association, of which Stormy was a founding member, that these activists sought to immediately historicize and politicize what had happened. By fighting the narrative that they were simply rioting, Stonewall veterans reframed what had happened as acts of political resistance. In doing so, they created a watershed moment that established the public profile of the gay rights movement for the first time. After the riots, something changed for Stormy. Here's how she describes it. I'll be 66 Christmas Eve. When I left them in 69, I stopped singing and I became a bodyguard. Direct opposite. So when I change, I change and it's permanent. And there's no looking back, there's only going ahead. Leaving drag behind, Stormy got a gun license and stalked the streets of the village with a revolver holstered to her hip. She had apparently long been acquainted with guns, at times hiding tiny derringers in her clothes. Sometime in the mid-1970s, Stormy's lover of 25 years, a dancer now known only as Diana, died. It's unclear what happened or who this woman was, but Stormy's friends later told the New York Times that she always carried Diana's photograph for the rest of her life. By the 1980s, she found work as a bouncer and, in her words, bodyguard for lesbian bars like The Cubbyhole and Henrietta Hudson. In addition to her paid work as a bouncer, she was known to keep an eye out on the streets, jumping in to protect lesbians and other women who were being harassed by men. 
This earned her the title of the Guardian of Lesbians in the Village. The 1980s were a hard time, though. The AIDS epidemic hit the gay community hard, resulting in thousands of deaths as straight officials refused to act. Stormy's close friend from her jewel box days, Mr. Lynn Carter, died from AIDS-related complications in 1985. So when they called me, I was at work doing sound in another club, and they called and told me that he had passed away, and this was uh, January 1985. I, I, I didn't know what to do, and I never cry. And when people saw the tears start rolling, they, they held the show up for an hour until I could go backstage and compose myself. Because it was just a, such a sad, such a loss, because he was such a fantastic performer. And he was the front runner long before Bailey and all the others and Lacage. And, and there was just something so dynamic about him and the warmth and the laughter and sometimes almost boyish when he'd come to work and we used to laugh and tee and giggle about all kinds of things. And I had talked to him about this project and he said, oh yes, after the first of the year we'll get together and talk. Because he was going home to visit his family, I had no idea he was that ill. And that's the last time I talked to him. And the last time I saw him was maybe six months before. I went to see him in a, a club. And I don't even like talking about it now. And I think we better cut the camera because I think I'm going to cry. During this time, Stormy took up residence in the famed Chelsea Hotel. In addition to her work as a bouncer at lesbian bars, Stormy continued to sing and MC in various bars in New York. She was elected several times as Imperial King by the Imperial Court of New York, with whom she stayed active for many years. She also stayed active in a number of other causes, taking up issues affecting battered women and children, in addition to her work on LGBT causes. Asked about this, she responded, Somebody has to care. People say, why do you still do that? I said, it's very simple. If people didn't care about me when I was growing up with my mother being black raised in the South, I said, I wouldn't be here. In 2000, she was honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award by LGBT Elders Association, SAGE. Around this time, SAGE had become engaged in helping her resist eviction from the Chelsea Hotel. They were ultimately successful, and she remained there until 2009. However, she continued to be plagued by legal and mental health issues over the next decade. Stormy continued her work as a bouncer and guardian of the lesbians of the village until 2005, when she finally retired at the age of 85. By 2009, her health had taken a downturn. Jewish Association for Services for the Aged, or JASA, was appointed her legal guardian in court. And the following year, she was hospitalized after being found disoriented and dehydrated in her room at the Chelsea Hotel. In addition to struggling with poverty, it was determined that she was suffering from dementia. Jassa, Sage, and a number of her friends and neighbors from the Chelsea helped her move to a nursing home in 2010. 
One friend, Lisa Canistrasi, owner of the Henrietta Hudson lesbian bar where Stormy worked for many years as a bouncer, railed against the gay community's lack of action to take care of Stormy. She told the New York Times, quote, I feel like the gay community could have really rallied, but they didn't. The young gays and lesbians today have never heard of her, and most of our activists are young. They're in their 20s and early 30s. The community that's familiar with her is dwindling. Stormy would spend the next four years living in room 609 of the Oxford Nursing Home in Brooklyn. Friends expressed frustration that the nursing home did not allow her to go outside, even for walks with friends. Over this period, her dementia increased, and in May 2014, Stormy suffered a heart attack. She died the next day at 93 years old. More than just the butch at the heart of the Stonewall Rebellion, Stormy lived a bold life through decades of incredible social change. From being a mixed-race drag king in the Jim Crow South to the Stonewall Rebellion that changed the lives of queer and trans people across the world, through the darkest days of the AIDS epidemic and past the election of the first Black president, Stormy worked hard to protect and uplift those around her. In my opinion, she deserves the hidden figures treatment. Now, I'll let Stormy herself play us out. Not easy. I know. You know, you know my favorite expression, it ain't easy being green. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. To get more of a taste for Stormy's incredible life, check out Michelle Parkerson's excellent documentary, Stormy, the Lady of the Jewel Box, which you can find on YouTube. There's a link in the show notes. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com OFTV. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. If there will never
The day I slow down, they'll be sprinkling my ashes to the four winds. Introducing the world's foremost female impersonators in the world's most unusual show, starring Mr. Lynn Carter. And now the Jewel Box Overture with Ned Harvey and his orchestra. Show with us. 